Welcome to this episode of What We're Learning About Learning, a podcast about higher ed teaching and learning created and produced by the Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship, also known as CANDLES, at Georgetown University. I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. And I'm Joe King. With this podcast series, we attempt to keep our ears to the ground and bring you conversations from across higher ed, specifically on Georgetown's campus. Last episode, we brought you several faculty considerations of what academic excellence means and how we can inspire it in our students. This episode, we want to highlight a less traditional assessment practice that is slowly gaining ground among an increasing number of faculty. It's known as ungrading. These conversations about inspiring academic excellence and renegotiating traditional grading practices actually work hand in hand, as we'll explore in this episode. In fact, We'll hear from faculty who reported that, in some cases, assigning grades can hinder students from achieving the academic excellence we strive to inspire in the classroom. Like many things, grading is not dichotomous in that faculty either grade or they don't. Rather, grading practices and techniques are varied and fall along a continuum, ranging from strict grading policies to contract-based grading to assigning no grades at all. Ungrading can be applied to an entire course design, to an assignment, or even to part of a class or an activity. Wherever they find themselves on the continuum, we hear faculty wrestle with the nuances and complexities of assigning grades and concerns about their impact. Many studies show the depressive effect numeric grades can have on student motivation and learning. So we drew on the experiences of four faculty using ungrading to learn more about it and to help us think through why alternatives to conventional grading practices can benefit learning. You'll hear from Patrick Johnson, Associate Teaching Professor in Physics, Karen Schaup, Director of the Writing Center and Associate Teaching Professor in English, Erica Simon, Teaching Professor in the American Studies Program, and Milena Santoro, Associate Professor in the Department of French and Francophone Studies. These instructors follow different paths to ungrading and don't all practice the same techniques. Before we dive into their techniques, the how of ungrading, let's start with the why and what brought them to this practice. First, here's Erica Simon, who participated in a teaching circle at our center on ungrading, on what motivated her to try it in the classroom. I'm very interested in this idea that we all have a natural motivational tendency. In our teaching circle, we read from Susan Blum's book, and this is a quotation from Richard Ryan uh, and Edward Dietschy, humans in their healthiest states are active, inquisitive, curious, and playful creatures displaying a ubiquitous readiness to learn and explore. And they do not require extraneous incentives to do so. This natural motivational tendency, this sort of desperate need to learn, this unstoppable proactivity to pursue curiosities. I mean, this is, this is the Mac Daddy. This is the dream if I could create a classroom environment where students could tap into this natural motivational tendency, uh, it, would, it would be a huge success. One of the things that I took away from really blew my mind, that I took away from reading about this topic, is that there are numerous studies that again and again and again show a loss of intrinsic motivation when extrinsic motivations are dominant. So this is what, you know, educational psychologists are up to. They're doing these studies. And they've shown that when our feedback and comments on papers is accompanied by a grade, an extrinsic motivation, students disregard comments. 
Susan Blum writes, despite the time harried faculty put into writing comments, the sad and enduring fact has been that students rarely read them. This is, this is huge. What it means is that the grading and assessment structures that we swim inside are not working. And it's, it's not that they are just dampening or distracting from this natural motivational tendency or intrinsic motivation to learn and proactively pursue our curiosities. They're not just dampening or interrupting. These studies show that they are, they are barriers to innate motivation. They are barriers to the type of natural learning that we're all predisposed to. I think that's huge. I think that that warrants a a really serious look at what we're doing in our classrooms. We heard a lot about natural motivation and curiosity in our last episode, so Erica's comments really seem to click. How can grades limit this natural curiosity and motivation in students? This question came up from Milena Santoro, too, who wanted to see if ungrading could shift the focus away from grades and motivate students to challenge themselves in her class. I first got introduced to the idea of a grading contract um, due to the work of Catherine Goodman here at Georgetown. I saw her grading contract. It really interested me. I did some thinking, asked some questions. And the thing that really stuck with me when I was reading her contract was this quote by Colorado educator, Dr. Sarah Zerwin, who said, a grade focus in the classroom leads to students choosing the easiest possible path to grade because students are unlikely to take the risks involved in real learning. A grade focus results in surface level thinking and decreased student interest in what is going on in the classroom. And it was this superficiality and decreased interest that were problems that I had seen in my own classes. I really wanted to try something different, try something to get past this surface level thinking and to increase student interest in what was going on in the classroom. When Patrick Johnson first heard about ungrading as part of a faculty cohort on teaching and learning, he first dismissed it as unrealistic for his STEM classes. He describes how his perspective evolved over time after realizing how ungrading can work. When I first heard about ungrading, it was at a time when I was redoing my sound and sight course, and I led a session for my uh, cohort in a discussion of ungrading. And so I had done a bunch of readings on it, and I was very much like, this doesn't work. This can't work. Like, maybe you all who have people write essays, this could work for you all, but like for something that's very math focused, just it can't work because if you're writing an argument, a philosophical argument for or against a position, your words are always going to be different than somebody else's words. Whereas if I'm asking you to solve a mathematical equation, your math should be the same as my math or at least very, very similar. And so I thought that this is a fine idea for humanities, but could never work for STEM. Uh, And uh, I came at it from a very closed-minded approach because I thought seemed kind of hand wavy and stuff like that. But my vision of ungrading has certainly evolved over time. I've come to realize that I've actually been incorporating aspects of ungrading into the way that I've taught my classes without even realizing it. When I first heard the term, it sounded like students make up their own grades at the end and uh, everybody's happy. What I realized as I 
read more and learned more is that I feel like it is separating the pressure of grades from the pressure of learning because a lot of my students really, really, really are concerned about getting an A and they are going to check whatever boxes they need to do to get that grade, regardless of whether that is a good method for learning. While it's not unusual for educators to adopt teaching practices that worked for them back when they were students, Patrick notes that it's sometimes worth rethinking these practices and considering whether or not they are serving student learning. In my smaller classes, it helped me get over the idea of like, here's a deadline. And if you can't get it in by this deadline, there's a late penalty. And like, I don't know, like just, I, I feel like a lot of the things that I did with the course design, I did because that's how my classes worked when I took them. And I like hadn't really thought anything about it. And then if we only ever do the same things over and over and over again, we're going to get the same variety of folks in this field. I don't need to be the first person to say that we have real diversity issues in math and physics and STEM and things like that. So I think the idea that the way that we've always done it is the way that it is best done is just so flawed in a number of ways. I have always tried to downplay the importance of grades. Like I want to acknowledge the system that we all exist in. I want to acknowledge that med schools care a lot about GPAs in a way that I think is unhealthy and bad and not a good measure of anything. But I also want to acknowledge that like this number is incapable of describing their self-worth. The idea that I could take the entire experience of a person in my class and summarize it with a single letter with maybe a plus or minus sign is just absurd. Uh, and there are people in my class who maybe get great scores on the first two exams, do really well on everything, and then bomb the final. And then there are some people who like bomb the first exam, do well on the second exam, do much, much better on the third exam. And, uh, and then there's the person who does exactly the same on every exam. And those three students have three completely different stories in my class, but may end up getting the exact same letter grade. Karen Schaup was similarly frustrated with traditional grading and found that ungrading aligned better with the goals of her writing course, encouraging her students to focus on the process of learning rather than on the final product or grade. Ungrading really fits well with writing and having taught writing for, you know, over 15 years now, um, just feeling frustrated with the traditional assessment process um, because there were a few problems with it. One, I think in a writing course, students are revising their work typically many, many times. And so it became really fuzzy to figure out how do I assess this final product that I can see one student started at A and ended up at B and one student started at B and ended up at D. And, you know, how do you figure out what's a fair way to assess, you know, those changes that you were seeing um, in the work that the student was producing? when all of our attention kind of went to what's my final grade going to be, um, it seems like we were having conversations that were really not even secondary to what I saw as the purpose of the course, even though, of course, I understand students' concerns about grades, and I, I think their concerns are, are incredibly reasonable, but often what they thought the grade communicated wasn't the same thing that I thought the grade communicated, and so I felt like there was a lot of misunderstanding between myself and the students, and that was true, you know, no matter how many rubrics I made or how many descriptions I made of what the grades were. Many faculty may be experiencing similar challenges with conventional grading, but how do you start to shift away from assigning numeric grades? Here's Karen. Ungrading to me means flipping the process around a little bit. In a conventional grading system, students do a variety of tasks that are assessed um, in 
a variety of ways. Um, and at the end of the semester, uh, those tasks and assignments and activities are weighted to produce a final grade. In ungrading, uh, you start by basically telling the students that this grade of A, A minus, B plus, whatever it is, is available to them. Basically like plotting out for them what the math is to that grade. It doesn't depend on the assessment of individual assignments in the same way that it would in a tradi traditional grading system. Even by the, the end of the semester, students, are, students aren't guaranteed anything if, if what they're turning is, is incomplete. I still have an opportunity to intervene and motivate students um, to kind of bring the energy back to the class. Instead of using hard and fast final grades, this roadmap approach captures each student's learning across a course's arc. I think like giving the students an informed list of things that they can use to make that decision of like, okay, I know that I really want to get an A in this class, but I also know that if I want to accomplish this, that, and the other, I'm probably only going to be able to put an A minus work. And so like being able to say, I'm going to go ahead and let this lab report slide a little bit, or this recitation slide a little bit, knowing the consequences of that, but knowing that it's not going to turn from an A to an F or whatever. Um, whereas I think that uncertainty is something that plagues many of my students in traditional grading structures. And the traditional grading system to me values um, students who are already prepared to do the things that we're asking them to do. And so students who are really like learning to do the things I'm asking them to do and really struggling to learn how to do those things and doing it with a lot of good faith and energy and motivation and hard work, we're kind of like maybe even learning more in the courses, uh, maybe not getting to the A that other students were getting to more easily. And I feel like this was also informed, you know, by students, you know, what kind of courses they took in high school and what kind of support they had and what kind of um, experiences they had and just feeling really uncomfortable continuing to like privilege students who um, had opportunities that other students didn't have. But what are the nuts and bolts of ungrading? What do faculty actually do? Here's Karen and Patrick again. I don't assess individual assignments. So everything that a student turns in is based on being complete or incomplete. Um, and so if things are incomplete, students have an opportunity to revise and um, make that work complete before the end of the semester, all with an agreement <laughs> that has been communicated to them in writing through conversation, um, what they need to do in order to arrive at the grade that they, that they want to achieve in the class. Um, so just to be a little bit more specific, like in my course, in my first year writing course, where I use a grading agreement, everyone in the class starts with a B. So that's the starting place. Everyone just by being a member of the class starts with a B. Um, of course, if a student just fails to show up the entire semester and doesn't turn anything in, they don't end up with a B in the class. You know, this is the usual sort of interventions and, and sort of, you know, grading, <laughs> more traditional grading would factor into that. But then, you know, within the grading agreement, students um, know what they need to do to go from a B to an A in the course through incremental assignments. And, and like I said, the individual assignments are not assessed in a traditional way where they get a letter grade. Um, they get extensive feedback, um, but they are marked on a complete incomplete basis. 
And so what I've done this semester is for each of the major assignments, students can earn extra points by doing additional things related to that assignment. So they're not sort of separate things that students are doing that are additional to what we're doing in class, but they're ways of enhancing the projects that we're working on in class. So we did an annotated bibliography this semester. The students were required to kind of annotate six sources. If they wanted to earn extra points, they could do 10 sources. I have been trying to create both a more balanced uh, way of assessing people rather than the traditional physics method of like a weekly problem set, a daily problem set, and a monthly test or whatever kind of thing. Uh, I've been trying to come up with new ways of doing things. For instance, in my sight and sound class, my science for all class, when I had students doing group projects where they would present to the class at the end, one of the things that I would have all of them do is when they are watching other people's presentations, they fill out a little three question questionnaire of like, does it look like everybody contributed equally? Did you feel like this was on an appropriate level? And on a scale from zero to 100, what would you rate this presentation? I 100% did not take whatever they rated each other as like the final grade, but I did factor that into overall grade. And certainly there are the demographic of people who just write 100 for everybody. There are some people who put in some real legitimate thought into like, oh, well, I think of this as more of like a 92 and then 94 or whatever. But I would really take uh, both their qualitative and their quantitative responses into this. And they would also have a similar uh, thing that they fill out about their own group of, did everybody contribute equally? Like on a scale from zero to 100, how would you rate yourself? Um, do you feel like you uh, did uh, an effective job meeting the requirements of this presentation? And I had been doing that since the first time I taught an incarnation of this class back in 2012, like well before I had ever heard the phrase on grading. And so understanding that like, oh, this little thing that I was doing was a version of this. This approach doesn't just apply to papers and presentations or to specific disciplines. In Patrick's experience, a small ungrading tweak reduce the incidence of cheating, academic dishonesty, and even shortcuts the students would take in his physics course. I'm sure many of my STEM colleagues who would be listening to this right now would be like, okay, 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 but you just talked about a bunch of stuff that sounds more humanities-like than STEM-like. I would argue presentations and writing can be very STEM. But even when it came to my intro physics class, I had my students historically work with an online homework system where they're submitting three questions per lecture, essentially. And when I first started, it was, you had three chances. The first chance you could get 100%, the second chance you could get 80%, the third chance you could get 60%, and after that it was 0%. And then I was kind of like, well, I really want them to still try. So then I like had it bottom out at 60%. So they could still get credit, but it was a much lower stakes kind of thing. And then I realized a good fraction of them were just looking it all up on Chegg anyways. And like that's, they were doing that because they didn't want to lose all of these points. And so I changed it to just be like, if you eventually type in the correct answer, you will get full credit for this. And the number of people who looked it up on Chegg dropped significantly. Since most people have been graded on their schoolwork since elementary school, the concept of ungrading can be jarring and hard for students to wrap their minds around. The faculty we spoke with talked about the importance of involving students in the process and taking the time to really explain what you mean by ungrading. Here's Karen Schaup, followed by Erica Simon, Milena Santoro, and Patrick Johnson. 
The one thing I do as part of the grading agreement is have them reflect on this at the beginning of the semester. So I have a prompt for them, a reading that they do, a prompt, and they, they write about like, what's your relationship to grades, right? Like, how does this fit into your like identity as a student? And a lot of students say like, I'm actually kind of worried about this because grades have been my primary motivation for many, many years. And like, I actually, like, I actually don't know what I'm going to do in this context when I feel like grades are no longer the factor that they were, you know, the sort of same kind of traditional individual assessment of assignments. Like, how will I stay motivated? I was totally transparent with the students about what I was attempting to do and very candid with my insecurities in terms of you know, I didn't know if it was going to work or not. So they were game and we gave it a shot. I laid out the objective. So in this course, we will largely use an ungrading scheme in order to foster the following objectives. Encourage you to take risks. Give you more agency in determining your grade. Encourage a collective focus on learning and improvement rather than grades. Enable this learning experience to meet you wherever you are right now. And then finally, to allow you to become aware of the reasons why you choose to do quality work and what your criteria for success looks like. And I think if I had to boil all these objectives down to one, I would say it was that final one. I wanted to just see what it would be like, and I wanted to, students to experience what it would be like, to pay attention to why they chose to do quality work when they really didn't have to. I was very upfront, much like Erica said she was, um, in that I explained to the students in my French 434, which was Quebec Film and Society, in the seminar, I explained to them that this was an experiment and it was also a mutual commitment. And I explained and presented the contract to them and I wanted them to consider it before they voted. So I gave them a week where they could look it over, think about it, ask me questions. Um, and when it came time to vote the following week, they voted unanimously to give it a try. So so I had 100% student buy-in, which I think is super important when you're trying something that's a bit of a, an experiment. So they had some commitments they had to fulfill, um, and I had some commitments that I had to fulfill, and I reminded them of that commitment over the course of the semester. And one of the ways that I did that was making sure that I met individually with students along the way to ensure that they had their eyes on their goals, because um, this was really a student goal-driven grading contract. In a similar move to help students forgo their hesitancy and embrace the spirit of what he's trying to do, Patrick has found it helpful to avoid using the term ungrading when he talks about how he assesses his students. I feel like it is somewhat of a, an amorphous term, even in the literature that I have read about it and like the experiences that I have kind of, I don't know if case study would be the right word, but reading about people's experiences of implementing it and talking about it in such a way that I don't feel like I would do a good job of describing like a technical definition to my students. But I do talk about the way in which these things are going to be assessed at the beginning of the semester. And I talk about the learning goals that I'm hoping to achieve with this assessment and why I'm grading it in this way. And so, for instance, turning the Mastering Physics online homework into a completion grade, what I talked to my students about was the point of this is for you to have the opportunity to try some physics problems in a very low stakes environment with the understanding that 
the vast majority of people will get the vast majority of physics problems wrong on their first attempt. I mess up my attempt at physics problems on the first attempt sometimes. And like, that's okay. <laughs> I want them to have the freedom to like, give it a go, type in an answer and know that they can still get full credit for that assignment, for instance. And I think that laying out for my students why I'm making these decisions and kind of relying on their trust in me that like, hey, I've been doing this for a while. I, like, I'm not just like arbitrarily making these decisions, I think goes a long way. And I have found that my students are very willing to go with me if I tell them like, this is what I have learned from teaching people just like you over many years. And I have found that this is the most effective way for them to succeed both in this class or with my pre-meds. They're going to have to take an MCAT on a bunch of things, including physics. And although they want to get that good grade in my class, like ultimately, I think they're more concerned about can they do well on this MCAT exam. Milena not only found that students reacted positively to her assessment approach, she also enjoyed the process. Not assigning grades to her students alleviated pressure on both sides. They validated for me the instinct that pushed me towards trying this option. Um, so just to, to read a couple of them, the student says, I loved how much everyone participated. It is rare in my French classes that everyone in the class participates often and has amazing things to say all the time. This comment goes directly towards my feeling that when they felt they were no longer being graded, the students were much more willing to communicate and open up and participate without the fear of making a mistake and therefore losing face or losing points in a sort of graded world. I always really love it when students recognize that I put a lot of thought into my classes. So when one of the students wrote, it was a joy to, it's always a joy to take a class that has been well designed. I really learned a great deal. And then added the grading contract was a great tool that allowed me to focus on learning without worrying about grades. When I read that, I was like, yes. <laughs> and the student adds, I felt I was able to dig deeper on subject that inspired me as I went along and not have to compromise based on what I thought would be most effective from a grading standpoint. So that was the total win there. That's to me, the sign that this was the right choice for this class and that it went really well from my perspective and the student's perspective. My dread of grading diminished considerably. I felt more like I was working with grad students where my comments could be candid and I could offer feedback on things that they did well and things that they should improve without, without constantly worrying that I was going to either demotivate them with a grade or that I had to justify why I didn't give a student an A. And of course, there are challenges of taking this unorthodox approach, as Erica describes it. We all still operate in a university system, in a broader educational system, where grades are the metrics, and we need to submit grades at the end of the semester. Here's Karen's reflection on a challenge she faced as a result of our grade-oriented ecosystem. It's like you have a grading agreement for a particular course, but you're still within a larger ecosystem that values grades. And I feel like it is a challenge to have students stay engaged. 
in the process of the grading agreement. So I think, you know, I would say, you know, there's always maybe 10 or 15% of students who by the end of the semester, I feel like maybe aren't taking the classes seriously as they were in the beginning of the semester because they feel like they've already accomplished the grade that they want for the semester or they're like on track to accomplish that grade. You know, and, and again, it's Georgetown students are taking four other classes, you know, internships, all the stuff. And I feel like sometimes the ungrading, you know, can, can like provide an opportunity for them to not be as motivated as I wish they would be by the end of the semester. And I don't really see that as a problem with the grading agreement as much as I see that as a problem with the wider culture that we all teach in. Part of what I hope I'm doing is to kind of facilitate a culture shift away from grades as the product of the course and, and towards learning as the product of the course. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach to ungrading, but I think having conversations with students about the grades and, and kind of how the grades might be an impediment to their curiosity and to their learning, which I think they often are, <laughs> um, preventing instead of facilitating learning. So if you feel ready to try incorporating some ungrading techniques into your teaching, here's some advice from Patrick and Karen on how to get started. The first thing I would say is don't be afraid. Like uh, that was, I think one of the bigger hurdles for me was like, I had a system that worked and I had been doing it for a while. And like, uh, I'm not going to say that the first time I'd tried something specifically intentionally ungrading, like I was completely redesigning our class. Like it was more like, I'm going to redesign this one assessment inside of this one class kind of thing, but don't be afraid to change a thing. And just as a slight variation on the concept of ungrading that I, I don't think would technically fit into what most people think of as ungrading, but a thing that I try to do when assessing individual parts to a physics problem is that I'll maybe make a part worth three points. And then those three points are assigned to three is for perfect, zero is for blank space, one is like, yeah, you kind of tried. And two is like, you were really close, but then you messed something up. And it's like, that's not a strict rubric. Like there are many ways to get really close, but eh, just missed by a little bit. And there are many ways to eh, make an attempt, but like go pretty far off. And like, I think that is a form of ungrading where it's like, uh, it's not, it's not the like on the gradient of strict grading and ungrading, like it's not really that far on the ungrading spectrum. But I think that is a much better way to assess like a specific calculation than saying you have to meet this, that, and the other type of thing. If you were interested in trying this, is like have a conversation with your class about what that would look like, right? To kind of collaborate with your students about what that could entail or kind of what, I, you know, and I think students are probably maybe even more hesitant of this than faculty potentially because again, you know, students are accustomed to being rewarded in certain ways and they want to know if they're doing better than other people. Grades are one way that kind of communicate that to them, right? Or I'm, you know, as part of their identity, I'm an A student, but what does it mean if everyone can like do that? Like, who am I? It's an ongoing process. And I think just having, like, I don't think there's like a clear right and wrong path. So that's why I feel like just being sort of open-minded and curious and willing to kind of engage in conversations <laughs> with your students and with your colleagues about this um, can be really beneficial to everyone. And, you know, I think that's what good teachers do anyway. I mean, they're always reflecting. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of What We're Learning About Learning. This episode was made possible by many people at Candles, including Molly Chihok, Eddie Maloney, David Ebenbach, Sophie Grabiak, Ellery Syverson, Noah Leiter, and Stephanie Chang. 
And a big thanks to the faculty who contributed to this episode, Patrick Johnson, Karen Schaup, Erica Simon, and Milena Santoro. Thanks also to Milo Stout for creating earth-shattering music for the podcast. For more information about our podcast series and our guests, check out our show notes where you'll find links to previous episodes, information about how to share your thoughts and ideas with us, our website and blog, and other resources. Again, I'm Joe King. And I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. Thanks for listening.